Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Siegel, your host, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Jessica Zukovich, who has a new book which just came out with the University of Toronto Press. It's called Superfluous Women, Art, Feminism, and Revolution in 21st Century Ukraine. Welcome today to our podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. So uh, we'll have this podcast uh, on new books in Eastern European studies, and um, hopefully we'll have a chance to profile you as a cultural historian and as an anthropologist and many other things. I want to introduce our audience to you and your work. So Dr. Jessica Zuchovic was recently a U.S. Fulbright Scholar to Kiev Mohila Academy in Ukraine, 2017-18, and she's currently based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. She was also a postdoc fellow at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and has been hosted in residencies and invited talks at Uppsala University Institute for Russian and East European Studies in Sweden, the University of St. Andrews in Edinburgh, NYU Center for European and Mediterranean Studies, among others. Uh, Jessica earned her doctorate at the University of Michigan, wonderful place, and holds a degree from UC Berkeley. Uh, And for more information, you can find her site at www.jes-zychowicz.com. Thanks for joining us again. And so I want to start with the first question about your book. The title is called Superfluous Women, and the book is about um, art, especially avant-garde art and transnational feminism. So how did you decide on this title and how did you come to the topic? Yes, that's a very interesting question. I sort of happened upon this title by accident. One of my mentors in reading an early draft of this project had made a, a side note, a marginal note, Um, buried among many side notes. And it really struck me superfluous. Um, This person was a poet. Uh, His name is Benjamin Paloff, and he's now a good friend of mine, having um, known him for many, many years. And what I'm really referencing here is um, a tendency to view, let's say, feminism, uh, which I'll get to because that term itself is a bit awkward, feminism, gender issues as being unimportant during periods of great uh, political upheaval or difficulty in a society. Um, the, the term has a history that is prominent in Russian letters, um, owing its uh, genealogy to um, Yevgeny Onegin as a prototype for the superfluous man, um, a sort of dandy boy or someone who has so much privilege in society that sometimes they fail to integrate or see society from a critical vantage point. Um, But the author who was using this actual term superfluous was Ivan Chugenev. And in the 1830s, the superfluous men were viewed um, as sort of trapped between generations. So they were too young to participate or understand the revolution that would come soon in 1905 and 1917, but they were also a bit too old to really um, 
have partaken in the discussions around serfdom prior to their generation. So in this sense, the generation I'm looking at in Ukraine is very much um, kind of between historical junctures, between the Orange Revolution and the Maidan Revolution. They're, they're dealing with these issues um, that have been, you know, taken up by their parents in the fall of the Soviet Union, but not fully completed or or resolved in, in their lives. So they're living their lives out under the rule of those who who themselves were formed during the Soviet era and have proclaimed the Soviet era dead, but it is still very much active um, in different ways. And I'll get to that. Um, but it, but there is a tongue-in-cheek uh, reference here because superfluous women, women being um, the first that are thrown away in a revolution or not you know, fully given the same opportunities when rebuilding a society after a massive shift or paradigm shift. Women are women's needs are often cast aside first. And uh, another mentor of mine, Sarah Phillips, has written beautifully about this happening in the 1990s in Ukraine, and that was also at, at the forefront of my mind in in um, choosing this particular title. Yeah, and I have a lot of questions about transnational uh, feminism and revolution, which which I hope we can get to in talking about the foundational moment of the Orange Revolution and after. You talk in your book about the figure of the art activist, and I, I wonder how you understand this coming out of the context as you explain the Slavophile and Westernizer debates um, I, I know that you have a background in African-American literature, which I found really interesting. I, I also studied African-American lit and Ralph Ellison and Baldwin. Um, but I, I wonder if we, if we can talk about the, the figure. How does the superfluous woman or women connect with the art activist, and, and particularly in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in Ukraine, art has an immediacy in among the current generation, if you're if we're looking at the aesthetic forms that these particular um, artists or art activists, which yes, I will get to this awkward hyphen, what they're using are a lot of forms from the 1920s, and in the 20s in Kiev, you know, after the revolution, you had a lot of, um, you know questioning around how much to engage with the state. How much should your art be politicized? Um, Are you the the agent of that politicization? Is the institution you're working in, the writer's union, let's say, or the uh, Kiev Artists Union, the agent of that politics? And in the 20s, you know, under Leninism, there was a wide range of freedom uh, granted to artists. And there were um, huge towering figures working in the same city at the same time. Everyone will know the name Malevich, but also, you know, Taitlin. And these individuals later in the, the late 20s, under the rise of Stalinism, um, were executed for their works. There is this term executed renaissance um, that that particularly applies to the artists in Ukraine who are using elements of Ukrainian folk identity because in the, you know, policy changes in the late 20s that were outlawing nationalism or any kind of 
uh, you know, folk expressions that could be, lead to nationalism. Uh, this created these artists' demise. So in the present tense in Ukraine, this art activist uh, label often references a, uh, a dichotomy that that individuals are inside of. How much to be an artist, how much to be an activist is, I think, a skepticism that um, this label refers to, that it's not a, a frozen or fixed label of someone who maybe made a piece of art referencing the Orange Revolution that makes them an activist. Um, it's it's about a process. So quite a few of the, the individuals, or I guess if we're using historiographic terminology, the agents in my text, these agents, they exert pressures on society when they're making their works. So um, one artist recently made uh, a piece of that that involved same-sex couples, and it was, you know, excluded from a show. And this then becomes a, a kind of site for meaning, for making political meaning through a form, through an art form. And in the in the post-Maidan. Um, Revolution of Dignity, which I, I use the term that the local Ukrainian, both uh, the government and civilians use, Revolution of Dignity. Uh, in this framework, you have decommunization uh, policies and laws. And right now for these art activists, they this dichotomy between art and activism has become even more pronounced because there are laws that are even arbitrarily applied to what becomes political. So what what an audience sees may or may not on the surface look to have any political meaning, but if an artist is able to show or frame a form in a way that draws out the tensions in society that they face, that I think is where the term art activist becomes most applicable. Um, and and we might also use more familiar terms like socially engaged art or nonconformist art, the idea of going underground, the underground man, um, Ralph Ellison, uh, invisible man of having a dual identity, a racial racialized sometimes identity of being, you know, maybe not Ukrainian enough because you are Russophone. Uh, these are all kind of, these are all issues that, the current generation is inheriting in different ways. And I think that is what's really special about, about, yeah. about this, because we can, we can all learn. <laughs> you know, we, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and the labels become too convenient, perhaps a post-colonial or post-communist to explain this scenario of split consciousness um, that's really interesting. I want to get into some specific examples of, of a lot of your activists and groups like Temen. Um, I do want to ask a question about generations and waves of um, feminist scholarship. So um, I, I do think that the Orange Revolution is a really foundational moment in 2004 in your book, but could you talk about some of the, the other um, feminist intellectuals and, and scholars, um, maybe you know people like Oksana Keys, for instance, in the 1990s, 
And then where I'm going with this is then to ask you for a typology <laughs> in the broadest possible way of, of opinions and perspectives on groups like feminine. Mm-hmm. So before going to Ukraine for the purposes of beginning this project uh, in 2009, I was engaging and reading quite a bit at University of Michigan um, with the work of Elena Gapova, who herself <clears throat> is actually from Minsk and started the Europe- European Humanities University gender program um, in Exodus in Lithuania. I also became quite familiar with um, work closer to Ukraine that was happening, you know, across the Atlantic near me by um, Oksana Keys, who who had a fellowship at Harvard at that time, and Sarah Phillips, who is an anthropologist and really helped a lot with method in in helping me to understand um, the most efficient way and the best sort of self-reflexive practices I could take with me into this project. And I also was very interested in in Nanette Funk and her work. She is based in New York. Um, There were quite a bit of anthologies in the 1990s published by scholars that I've named, as well as individuals working in Ukraine. that were transatlantic. So there were conferences held every few years. I'm thinking of Over the Wall After the Fall. Um, yeah, and, and these, these brought together a lot of chapters and essays by people working also in different parts of Eastern Europe, the Balkans, Mladina um, Klostonova, and all of these kinds of like, you know, composite texts were, I would say, dominated by social sciences. And I started to think about, well, what would it be like if I used some of the social science methods, in particular anthropology, which I'm drawn to through uh, Sarah Phillips' work? What would that mean to read, you know, literature, to read protest and cultural production through social sciences? So I went with this in mind, and I connected in Ukraine with younger generations of scholars, my peers, being, I guess, we would be, you know, third wave or even post-feminist if we're going by the traditional demarcations. And these were uh, Tamara Martsenyuk, Oksana Brukovetska, and Natalia Chermalich, and also Nadia Parfan, the founder of a film very successful film festival, Film 86, um, which takes place up near the Chernobyl zone, but I believe they are on hiatus right now for various administrative reasons. So, yeah, they, they are. They're wonderful, but they are, unfortunately, I heard. Yeah, yes. yeah I hope they come back into, into uh, the world because they're wonderful, and I've, I've gone to that film festival a couple of times now. And so I started to... Um, Explore Kiev. I had been to Ukraine before this time uh, in 2005 to 2007. I had lived in Western Ukraine, and I was also 
um, studying Russian and taking Russian. And so I wanted to use my Russian. <clears throat> so that was my motivation for starting in Kiev, not only because it was the capital, but because I, I had not spent a lot of time there. And it is um, so important for the history of art. Um, I traveled also to Kharkiv, and I noted differences, regional differences in the ideas, um, in the approaches to, to gender issues. And what I found united all of the, the different regions that I went to, I also went to southern Ukraine, was um, organizing around class and labor, and in particular, equality in the hiring and retention process of women in the professions. And the activists in the NGOs had very different narratives and motivations for calling themselves feminists than the scholars. And sometimes the, the activists would say that, that, you know, academic feminism has its own agendas in Ukraine and I shouldn't trust it. And there was a lot, a lot of contention, you know, around what feminism is or could become. And I think that was something, you know, already that I shared very much with my interlocutors was this re this, this, impulse to resist our mentors actually and and, and, and i want to i want to ask you some questions there because there there's almost a matricidal or parasitical element to this you mentioned fathers and sons and turgenev at the start so you interviewed from what uh, i understand and our readers i think will be fascinated with this you interviewed anna hutzel and femen and a lot of the activists personally um in the book so how how did you then develop your own set of opinions and then an analysis or let's call it even a typology of of femen's antics Be, because i mean I, I don't want to describe it negatively because i know that there are so many different opinions both academic and non-academic about um this protest group so maybe if you could explain a little bit about how you came to research femen and and other um similar groups or or different groups in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. yeah i first met anna hutzel in 2011 when they were she and the rest of her group were based in kiev still and there was um quite a bit of of you know interest and excitement to talk to me as a foreigner, as a Westerner, and also as someone who um, phenotypically and age-wise could actually blend in with their group, although I never joined their group because I didn't think it would you know, benefit the kind of methodology and um, objectivity I wanted to keep. Uh, it did, I believe, help me quite a bit to gain enough trust and access to have open and honest conversations. And in addition to Anna Hutzel, um, I found the most uh, illuminating conversations around those who were critical of feminine from within the Ukrainian communities that I was engaging with. Um, and this included a former feminine member who was African-Ukrainian, Angelina Diash. And I interviewed her in 2012, so very early on. When Femin moved abroad to Paris after they, one of their members, Ina Shevchenko, had sawed down a cross in Kiev, and uh, they were receiving a lot of um, 
you know, harassment from security services. Yeah. They moved abroad. Right. Right. They yeah. became a very different group of, with a lot more global visibility and much harder to contact, much less willing to to speak with me um, because I'm not a journalist. <laughs> I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't have right. the, the same. I think ability to to amplify, but. I did speak then at that time with feminine leaders in different countries who were not Ukrainian. And that brought in a new um, kind of way of seeing their group. And I also maintained throughout the 10 years of working on this project, um, consistent conversations. And I guess I would look at these as independent variables with Ukrainian scholars, Ukrainian activists, feminist activists who viewed themselves independently of feminine and also really, you know, their their work did not depend at all in on the media presence around feminine. So I'm thinking of my my now close colleague Natalia Charmalik, and we have published a few texts together about feminine. And Natalia has also since written a PhD and is now working on her book about the lawyers around Pussy Riot. The, mm, um, how public, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And she interviewed a lot of the, the lawyers because the idea of public defense law in Russia and the way it's developed is very contentious. And a lot of it is based on self-serving profit by quote unquote human rights lawyers who sometimes exploit the activists. So, she was working on that project and I was working on mine and we were talking a lot to one another, but we had very different, um, you know, positionalities with regard to our respective nations. She being a Ukrainian citizen, uh, fluent in, in French living in Geneva and myself being American, um, fluent in Ukrainian living in the United States. So that I, I think, you know, way of, looking at, at feminine both from a, a sort of de-territorialized um, and a, you know, complicated lens that is really about, you know, not viewing East versus West and, and getting away from, I think this is where I really split paths with the 1990s generation of feminists, um, where I, I think the lines between East and West were so much clearer if not, if not because of the inability to cross over the the iron yeah. curtain. Yeah, I and I and I wonder, I wonder if you might tell our, our listeners a little bit more um, in detail about how Femen lost its momentum. I, I hope that statement is kind of fair, um, but what they did when they had these sort of performances in which they uh, argued that they were rescuing. Muslim women. This is both a race and religion issue. So, but what exactly did they do? And then for others, let's say, who want to take um, feminism beyond branding and, and just sort of like simple performative transgression, I mean, could you tell our listeners maybe what, what went on in, in 2011 and 2012 and, and what that perhaps meant going forward into Maidan? Yeah, yeah. So when Femin moved to Paris, their first protest there was uh, with Elia Magdi, 
uh, Parisian Muslim American or Muslim French activist. And at that time, you know, they, they shifted their aesthetic into a sort of, they quoted um, a jihad. And they were using a lot of the, you know, slogans and um, symbols that might really offend a Muslim uh, community like uh, the moon, half moon and star. And this also, I think, was a time when, when religion really entered on the Christian side also, I would say, entered their protests because they they declared themselves anti-clerical and had in Paris also made a lot of anti, you know, Catholic or um, gestures. There was a protest in which they dressed up as nuns and um, were singing in Gay We Trust, in Gay We Trust, protesting for gay rights. And and the the Muslim women against feminine online Facebook group formed, and a lot of um, I would say at least a dozen publications have at, between the years to 2012 and 2016 come out um, very critical of feminine as blurring you know the the identifications of themselves as oppressed Ukrainian women with the degrees of oppression that women may or may not um, label in their own situations in Muslim countries. I thought a lot of those critiques are very justified. And in my, in my work, I cite those protests and I cite those scholars from, you know, women of color feminism. And I would also say since then, I've spoken with the feminine leader of, um, the Netherlands, who has written a text um, that she will publish. She has shared it with me, so I can't really cite her text directly, but I can say that she is also exploring some, like revisiting some of those um, earlier days and how they impacted her own experience with them. And, And she's very ambivalent and critical and she's distanced herself from the leadership of feminine saying that it was very top down very authoritarian within the group that there was um a, not a lot of structure that would suggest the that all women were empowered within the group that the, that it was very pyramidal for lack of a better term here um but it was it was very very um something that she joined feeling excited about and then left. And her her feelings um, echo a lot of what I have heard from Angelina Diaz, who was the earliest member of feminine uh, African-Ukrainian woman. And she said, she has said the same thing, that she, she felt um, there was just a lot of top-down maneuvering. But both of these feminine activists have told me they don't regret their time with the group, that they gained a lot of strength, a lot of courage, a lot of training in social organizing. And now they they are actually still activists and, and both of them artists. They are both making art. So that's very interesting to me that um, the time that individuals have spent with them, and I'm looking for more of them who are willing to share their stories, has been transformative for them. So I wouldn't just throw away the the group for for misusing um, or complicating uh, images from 
from Islam. So I thought a lot about, you know, what they're doing from a media vantage point. And my conclusions have largely been that in the 2000s, in the, in the era of the Iraq War, the most taboo images are those coming from, from the Middle East the, to show Western hegemony. I think they're playing around with the Western gaze and the sort of desensitization of of is of violence because we can we can say that you know the white woman yeah. <laughs> the image of the and, white woman is a is the polar opposite in in the sale of media yeah. yeah and 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 I and I think we could talk about feminine forever uh, but the silences within the movement are also I think extraordinarily interesting the photographs that are shown and not shown um, and and I think you know what you say about the, the kind of centralization of the movement or pyramidal organization of the movement, I, I think has to be a lesson for the other activists that that you profile. And so I, I really want to get to them. Um, you you um, write extensively in the book about Evgenia Belarusets and Thirty Two Gogol Street and the different. Um, series of exhibits and the scene in Kiev for the Visual Cultural Research Center. So can we fast forward into the 2000 teens? Would you, would you be willing to introduce some of these artists and, and activists, um, not, not just in Kiev, but especially in Kiev? Sure, sure. Yeah, since the Revolution of Dignity in 2013-2014, there has been, you know, an explosion of creative activity in Ukraine, which is wonderful. And there has been more state support for uh, publishing, for um, exhibits. And I would say that all of what, you know, we're, we're able to do now in Ukraine as researchers has changed. I have students who are working with my book already, writing their own texts and uncovering new things every day that I, I just haven't come across. So when I say VCRC, Belarus, it's, these are the, you know, I think the main drivers of the cultural scenes in Ukraine in the years before Maidan Revolution of Dignity. VCRC is still very active. For listeners, that's the Visual Culture Research Center. Thank you. They, yes, and they they started in Kiev Mohila Academy, um, and were kind of an ants or predecessor of now you know multiple groups that have branched out. But they also have a sort of ancestor in the CCA, the Creative Center that George Soros had funded, which at that time. In the early 2000s, just after the Orange Revolution, George Soros was funding these CCAs all over Eastern Europe. There's one in almost every country. And some of the most interesting and, and most experimental one is in Serbia. Fascinating, fascinating. Mm. And what, is, what, is that, what is that called? What is it called? CCA, the Creative Communities Association, I believe. Okay. Um, I'm not a George Soros expert, but there was recently a exhibit in, and I can follow up with a link to it, um, called The Influencing Machine, in mm -hmm. which artists, including some from Visual Culture Research Center in Kiev, um, 
they all convened uh, in Western Europe and created a large exhibit about how George Soros had created all of these centers and really influenced what is now art across all of Eastern Europe. <laughs> but yeah. then, and they were exposing some of it was quite subversive, you know. Um, sure, of course. You know, they were exposing the things they disagreed with and the funding structures and 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 whatnot. But the those early days in Kiev Mohila saw a lot of experimentation that kind of died under Viktor Yanukovych, um, who enjoyed his his <laughs> regime um, in the years 2011 to 2014. So half of the period that my book covers is the Yanukovych years, um, which were the most sort of oppressive for artists to be working in because there was not funding available. The institutions were um, kicking people out for doing anything that was not stamped and approved by their leaders. Right. And the Visual Culture Research Center was one of the casualties of the, of that period. So they were kicked out of Kiev Mohila for the show Ukrainian Body. And Yevgenia Belarusitz, I chose as an example of, you know, what I, I can't say she's the only artist, but there are many, you know, many wonderful photographers in Ukraine who have, um, you know, taken up the legacy of Rochenko and Dovzhenko and the incredible film history that that Kiev has given the world. And Yevgenia is a person, um, not only just a wonderful person in her engagements with with the subjects of her photos because she really gets to know them. She um, you know spends years and years on one project, and Thirty Two Gogol Street is a site that now no longer exists. But this is the name of the series I write about in my book, right? Where she's using the aesthetics of the the early film history in Kiev in, in adapting it into her own project. Yeah. And and could you talk a little bit about the reactions of Kiev Mohila Academy? You, you describe it at some length in your chapter three about censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially, you know, when it comes to LGBTQ communities, um, in trying, in trying to get art produced and then of course marketed. So, what I mean, how does this impact after Maidan um, mm-hmm. independent artists and artist co-ops who are who are simply trying to find an audience both in Ukraine and and of course beyond into the larger global world of art consumption? Mm-hmm. Sure. So Kiev Mohila as an institution is, a fantastic institution, I should say that first off, um, because they were one of the first of ever um, in Ukraine to host scholars from abroad, and they have a lot of Western partnerships. And I know they they have strong partnerships with Sweden. Actually, there's um, a center nestled nestled inside of. Kiev Mohila that brings scholars to Sweden and vice versa. So they do drive a lot of exchange um, internationally in Ukrainian academia that is really essential for students and scholars there. So I cannot 
say, and I've benefited also being hosted there as a Fulbright. You you were a Fulbrighter there in 2017-18, right? Was it at Mohila? Mm -hmm. Yes, sorry. In the sociology department, which um, has wonderful scholars working there on gender studies. So I specifically was going there for, um, you know, the gender studies uh, community of faculty and students and, and what's being generated there. But that being said, also, Kiev Mohila has a, a conservative side that um, other scholars, like I, only in my observations and what I write about, have have told me has been very difficult for them to be able to say and do what they want to do there. And when I'm researching, I try not to attack individuals because I don't want to to you know open the door to being somehow. Mm-hmm you know, on one side or the other side and meddling in their, in the local politics. But at the same time, I'm trying to create a document that is honest in showing, um, you know, what, referencing what the artists or the individuals creating the works I'm writing about are complaining about. and, and And to do that, I have to include documentation of individuals. So the particular, um, person that was working at Kiev Mohila when the Ukrainian body exhibit took place in the VCRC at that time was this um, president, Serhii Kvit, and he was blogging about his, you know, decision. He made a public blog uh, to to liquidate that center in the university, and this resulted in an international um, open letter signed by over 200 academics, some of them very prominent, like Judith Butler and others, who were speaking out against censorship of the arts in Ukraine. And in that sense, I think uh, I would put my name, I did put put my name onto that letter, because as a scholar, I feel there are um, international you know, forms that are appropriate, channels that are appropriate for supporting our colleagues when they're facing uh, censorship. So I I did sign that letter. And in this sense, what was outlined in that letter also was a lot of the achievements of the center, because I, I should mention that, yes, it's a visual culture research center, but they're also hosting really, like, well-known scholars. Um, Judith Halberstam, has been to Ukraine thanks to them. Mm, wow, <laughs> I, mean, I didn't. I didn't know that. that yeah. D- yeah, Judith Jack Halberstam. That's amazing. I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. they're they're, they're um, still operating and they're they're forming a uh, collaborative triennial uh, union with the a center in Prague and a center, I believe, in Zurich. There's a lot of influence from. Krytyka Polityczna, Poland. I haven't talked much about Poland in our conversation, but um, in my book, it's a huge influence for me because I started out in Polish studies and um, my mm-hmm. background is is Polish. And during the years um, leading up to the Maidan Revolution of Dignity, there was a lot of warm reception of me having, you know, affiliations and backgrounds with Poland in Ukraine. And there, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, Poland, just like Russia, has this really long and complicated 
relationship to Ukrainians and Ukrainian identity, sometimes a very violent one. So yeah, and I mean, if I can follow up on the Polish question a little bit, because I I follow um, LGBTQ issues in Poland quite a lot. So in Ukraine, is there still, I mean, this is a larger question about queer spaces, but um, is there still largely a taboo from your survey of the contemporary art scene against nude bodies and laying bare and a lot of these things that you're talking about in your book, um, have you seen improvements in LGBT rights um, situations and exhibits and things like this, funding for this, Um, not just in Kiev, but Odessa or or Kharkiv or Lviv? Mm -hmm. How do you read that situation? Yeah, so... In 2012, the first LGBT anthology of literature writings by LGBT authors was published in Ukraine. It's called 120 Days of Sodom. And there was some backlash to that. However, presses still carry and sell the title, which is promising. In more recent years, since the Maidan Revolution, um, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and my colleagues Tamara Martsanyuk in Ukraine have written about an increase in hate crime uh, towards LGBT, openly gay individuals. Um, I also know this from my colleagues uh, Olga Plahotnik and Maria Mayerchik, who are themselves the at least as far as I know, the only openly gay professors in all of Ukraine. Now they are in Canada, and uh, I don't believe they they are aiming to return to Ukraine. What does that mean in, in terms of the trends that could ensue um, with regard to the brain drain is a, is a great concern of mine. And I think that Having participated now twice in the Pride Kiev Pride March, I've observed with my own eyes this real sense of danger that that exists um, every day for for those who make their identities known. Um, but there, nonetheless, there is still work being done. Um, There's Insight, which is the oldest LGBT um, rights organization in Ukraine. It's an NGO. And they're still very successful in in helping individuals. Um, But there's fear. There's, There's definitely a marginalization of art and cultural production that is openly gay. Um, And I would say also feminist, too. I think that a way forward could be um, more of what is happening with the Kiev Pride March, which is uh, figures from embassies in Ukraine not, you know, affiliated with their official roles uh, have been participating in the march. So there's pressure, there's international pressure on state authorities now Mm. kind of get on to get on board and that's interesting yeah and, yeah and in this sense i don't i would not advocate poland today as the as the shining well, this is the last model in europe right for for revolutionary experimental space or other groups right i i, I that's part of the problem because it, 
to my mind, and, and I'm going to offer more of a political opinion than I should as a host, but uh, to, to my mind, there is a dream factory production of Europe that still goes on in Ukraine. And it, even at a post-revolutionary moment, or let's say a post-Maidan moment, um, it's still very much alive that, that there is a better there is a better Europe or a better EU out there, certainly in some respects. But um, that that is it's sort of a larger comment, and really, I think it's a question that that I would um, that I would ask of you uh, because you've surveyed an entire generation, or Maidans now in a plur- in the plural. So, um, what I mean, what is the takeaway here of, of positive and negative examples for for these art activists and and uh, and, and and the contemporary scene? I, I'd really like to, to get um, inspiration <laughs> going going forward from this because I think there's a lot of inspiring work there in Ukraine right now. Oh yeah. Um, well, you know, we are living in a global ecology of dissent and um, right now the Black Lives Matter movement has interested a lot of cultural producers in Ukraine. I say producers not in a commercial sense. And one of them, Olga or Oksana Brukovetska, one of the founders of the Visual Culture Research Center um, and a longtime now colleague of mine, she is currently in New Orleans where she has been collecting interviews with African-Americans, not necessarily part of Black Lives Matter, to get a sense of their experiences. And she's translating these interviews into Ukrainian and publishing them as a creative text in Ukraine. She's also very interested in African women's um, folk art, in particular, the quilting story quilting stories because she has herself been uh part of curating a show called textus in ukraine dealing with um re-identifying women's labor in the textile industries and also traditional veshevanke or um, embroidery in a feminist way so there's a reinvention here that's happening through cross-cultural dialogue that's really exciting for me being being an American in this process that you know the the histories of you know textiles in my own family my ancestors all came through Ellis Island and were working in Lower East Side of Manhattan in sweatshops Um, there are experiences we can weave together through what's happening now in the U.S. because it does sort of vacuum out this idea of a of a utopia in the West that is unproductive for my generation, um, where you know a lot of us are working on contracts or unemployed, and you don't need to be necessarily um, living in Kiev anymore to see. Sure, like, experience pre- precarity, corrupt, right? Corruption, yeah, corrupt, yeah, and and a lot of. The more recent political science polls have shown that Ukrainians are more concerned with corruption than they are with the Eastern Front, uh, with the war with yeah. Russia. Or, or, so, or say social inequality, right? Which, I mean, it might might be one or two. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I that's think, interesting. Mm-hmm. So in a positive sense, though, I mean, this is 
this is also new and old, right? Because um, the Soviets were using the uh, crisis of African-American identities in the West against the West in a kind of information war. And what the artists are doing in Ukraine is not at all uh, part of this sort of manipulation of information that we experience between our two societies in, with, in the politics as a capital P where, where creative works can be weaponized or, you know, states are funding, Ukraine now is funding um, its first round of cultural, their cultural and public diplomacy. So they're going to be sending funds to Western nations to produce works about Ukraine. And Yezhi Onuch, <clears throat> Yezhi Onuch, who was the cultural attaché to Ukraine for many years from Canada, he he funded quite a bit of revolutionary experimental spaces, early works in Kiev, and still is a big supporter of the arts there. He wrote a piece called The Beginning and the End, <laughs> Related right. to Ukrainian <laughs> cultural diplomacy, saying that he still doesn't trust the state. <laughs> so, so is the state always going to be the monster? I don't know. Zelensky. Yeah. Zelensky spoke, has... spoke, spoken like true anarchists and NGOs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. But that skepticism yeah. is is a a drive. I mean, it, that it does create a lot of. Um, interesting work, I would say that no one is is going to be bored if you yeah. <laughs> Ukraine Ukrainianist and you're studying these things closely. You will never yes yeah and and uh, and on that note, the what is to be done question, Jessica, could you talk about your current research and uh, perhaps some others that you might mm-hmm. recommend to our readers on on these subjects that you're interested in? Sure, so. I am now in the process of starting a second book, which I have begun researching already. Um, My Fulbright uh, was actually in 2017, my project for my Fulbright was lifting the digital iron curtain, a cultural and social history of the red web, where I was able to interview uh, early Soviet, well, not so early in the Soviet era, but early in the Soviet computing era, um, the the first programmers, computer programmers in Ukraine um, and mathematicians. I'm really excited about this book because I know that Benjamin Peters and Joshua Sanborn, two historians um, in the U.S., are also kind of creating a critical mass that's interested in this topic, along with some of the art activists in Ukraine that I've known for years. Um, They've been turning their attention to to the legacies, uh, local legacies of modern computing and rethinking, you know, what that means. Um, There is a book by Lisa Nakamura called Race After the Internet, and she is currently at University of Michigan. I read that book many years ago and kind of kept it in the back of my head. And so that that book is about uh, computing in East Asia and how within the systems we are using every day, the technological systems are embedded social processes that become automatic even or um, very, you know, invisible on the surface. So unpacking some of that will be, I think, really exciting in the coming years. 
Um, I have a book contract now for this book. So yay. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going somewhere. And um, yeah, next year, I hope to be based in Europe where I will be a little bit closer to the sources that I need to work with. Um, yeah, so that's great. And in terms of other books that I would recommend, if anyone listening out there is um, interested in following up on what we've been talking about today, um, my colleague Olga Plochotnik is currently in Alberta. She has a book contract for her next or her first monograph. It's called Sexual Citizenship and Belonging, I believe, in Ukraine and Belarus. So she will also be working on the Belarusian context. She is the professor who I'd mentioned earlier from Kharkiv, and she completed her text as a manuscript already in uh, the UK. So I'm really excited for that book. Should be out like in the next year or two. Uh, Mayhill Fowler is a historian who's written quite a bit about the early Soviet, um, uh, no, sorry, early Kiev period in the 1920s, yeah, the Lenin era. And I would say that her book is very much a companion read to mine if one is interested in tracing more. Um, Quick, quick plug for University of Toronto Press, Beaumont on Empire's Edge. Yes. Beaumont on Empire's Edge, exactly. She's writing a lot about theater in, in her work. And Kathy Viedlock, she is in Austria. She's written, I believe, two or three books now, but she has one book about bodies and punk rock. And I think that, yeah, and in Austrian punk and also Russian punk. And I think that her her work is is really fascinating and and what she she's doing there is what I would love to do. I would just yeah. I would love to to do what she does as well. She's we 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 all have these dream projects and we need money yes, <laughs> to yeah, carry exactly. them, to carry them out. Yes, <laughs> yes. Listening hi, out there. <laughs> listening out there. Hello, <laughs> funding structures help us. Um, yeah. it's, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Jessica, uh, mm-hmm. today. Um, we have been talking on the New Books Network with Dr. Jessica Zichovich. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Jessica's new book is called Superfluous Women, Art, Feminism, and Revolution in 21st Century Ukraine, out now with the University of Toronto Press 2020. Thank you, Jessica, for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you very much for having me. 